Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. My name is Mike Asbeck and I'm here with John McDonald. We are a podcast that discusses all aspects of a healthcare career, including career development, non-clinical career paths, and different ways that we can fight and combat burnout. John, how are you tonight? I'm well rested, and as I'm sure that you are as well, Mike. Let's, uh, let's talk about our wonderful weekend. Yeah, so John and I are both coming off of some time off of work, which was much needed. So I went to the Caribbean for a week and it was wonderful. I feel refreshed. I feel a little bit sunburned. What did you do? We went to the city for the first time. Carolyn had never been and I hadn't been in probably 12 years or so. And uh, we got to look around quite a bit, did a catacombs tour. I I don't want to do tour type stuff when I'm on vacation. I I don't like to feel like a tourist. But seeing catacombs seemed like a reason enough to go on one of these. So uh, we we enjoyed our time. That's great. Yeah, I think we can talk about it more in the off script because we're going to talk today about burnout and I think vacation and time away from work and maybe the difficulties of doing that as a healthcare professional. Sounds like a great topic, but we'll leave that for a little bit later since we always like to keep the, the more personal stuff behind the paywall. So, John, tell me about our topic for tonight, because I know this is something that you've put a lot of work into, and it's an area of interest and passion for you. Yeah. So, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about clinical burnout. Some interesting news came up over the last uh, week that involves my profession, primarily as pharmacist, Uh, but we're going to talk about the reduction of pharmacy hours and how this is impacting the healthcare workers and potentially economic outcomes, uh, the healthcare environment, and how it's progressing. Uh, Mike and I are, are going to discuss and see where we both land on either side of this, but I'm personally invested in it and I have my own, my own thoughts and feelings on it. So we'll, we'll see where it goes as we, as we move forward in it. Why don't you initially give us a bit of an introduction? Because as you say, reduced pharmacy hours, mm-hmm. I assume you mean that the pharmacy is not open from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. or whatever the normal hours are because of staffing concerns. Yeah, historically. But maybe lay it out for us just to make sure we're not leaving any listeners behind. Yeah, historically, your outpatient pharmacies will talk more about big box retailers. When I say big box, I mean Walgreens, the CVS, the Rite Aid's. Uh, anybody that you might see nationally or some of them with, of course, Walgreens and with Dwayne Reed and its uh, its Boots affiliate, they are international. But in the past, it's always been roughly 9 to 9, uh, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., uh, where some of these pharmacists, depending on how large the workload was and how busy the store was, they might get some overlap. They might work 12 hours by themselves. But uh, in the past couple of years, there's been a little bit of a switch. Uh, there had been staffing concerns primarily with Walgreens, uh, especially during the merger with Rite Aid, where some of the hours at stores were reduced to seven o'clock. And uh, so that meant management no longer was going to be there after seven. The pharmacy would be closed. Uh, No pharmacy would be on uh, to take any orders or fill scripts. So the business completely shuts down at that time. Well, 
now we're seeing as of January 30th, roughly, that's where most of the news came out, that Walgreens, or rather, sorry, Walmart and CVS have announced that they will be reducing their hours uh, indefinitely at, at this point to 7 p.m. So that would be across the nation. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's a great discussion more broadly, even outside of pharmacy, because in other areas, we see, you know, shortages in staff, or even within my clinic, we're going through this difficulty where patient demand continues to grow. And we're reaching a point where some of our treatments and some of our services, we really should be offering evening or weekend hours. But finding providers that want to work evenings and weekends is difficult, but also finding staff. Mm-hmm. is is really hard as well. So we're constantly in this battle to figure out, okay, what is the true demand for these extended hours? And will the cost to staff it and provide it really be worth the benefit? So they're calling this a, a crisis, however. Uh, the demand is more in the public view right now because it's more public facing. And once you start messing with people's medications, uh there, there tends to be a little bit more of a public outcry in social media and in news outlets. Uh, but many different news providers have already covered the story uh, and following it closely. Business Insider, CNN, Forbes have all commented on this, uh, primarily quoting uh, the, the reports that came out from these large organizations stating a pharmacy or pharmacist shortage. So it's more a labor issue um, rather than whatever crisis we might, we might dream up at this, at this moment. Yeah. It's so interesting because obviously every industry, it's not unique to healthcare has had difficulties with labor shortage, but in healthcare, and this maybe ties into the burnout discussion in healthcare, it's difficult because labor shortage can ultimately lead to a diminished level of care. Mm -hmm. You know, patients can't go without their medications. ICUs can't say, oh, we're going to shut down for the weekend because we don't have staff. So it's a really difficult thing because other businesses may be able to reduce hours. If a restaurant is not getting customers, it's a no-brainer to not stay open till 9 p.m. on a Monday night. But healthcare doesn't get that option. Yeah, think about nursing too. Right now, we, where you do have the nurses who are taking stands against a low level of cares, or rather level of care in their clinics or in their hospital. And there's a movement in educating new nurses, newly graduated nur- nurses, to take a contract position immediately because it's going to be really a dumpster fire, no matter if you take a contract for a single hospital, pay your loans off for three years, or if you're going to, I mean, whatever you decide to move into, it's going to stink anyways. So make triple the amount of money because they're going to pay you that amount of money to fill the need that they have just to keep their base level functioning. And you probably don't need to move. It probably can be right in the neighborhood you're currently working in. Uh, So the nursing staff has really been ingenious with saying, okay, if, well, if it's going to be really crappy, then we're going to find a different way to make it worth it for us. It's interesting with pharmacists though, because although we're in healthcare, it's a very different industry. So talk to me a little bit more specific about pharmacists because it's outside of my area of expertise. Obviously it's your career field, 
why has there been an increased pharmacy demand? Is this due to expansion of scope where pharmacists are now doing vaccinations, other things like that? Or is there a change in demand in actual pharmacy services, whether that be, you know, clinical Mm -hmm. or in a retail setting? Explain to me why we've seen such a shift. Because I think so often since COVID, we've seen these shifts where there's major disparities in supply and demand, and very often we may not necessarily have good reasons for it. Yeah, that's a great question. If you look at these these studies or rather reports that these major news organizations have taken the time to write, they they have some conjecture because at this point it seems to be mostly conjecture as to why this is occurring. But pharmacists, no, no matter who you ask, prior to COVID, enrollment had already started to decrease nationally. They were looking at this becoming an issue. Uh, pharmacy schools were starting to have to become a little bit more ingenious with how are they going to get students in the door because enrollment was dropping. So that's where you saw a lot of these online schools moving up, uh, making it access easier. Uh, the Even New York State removed the uh, licensing exam that they've had since the Oh, I actually, actually, I can't comment to when it occurred, but it was a compounding exam where we all feared it. They they recently dropped it over the last uh, couple of years, two, three years, I believe. So we've been seeing less and less activity coming out of the school system. And it would be, what's the word I'm looking for? This is going to be anecdotal, but the demand for our services are going up. Uh, they discuss reimbursements in these journal articles. However, if you ask a pharmacist, it's kind of reimbursement for their services as well. The de- we're giving vaccinations. We took over the the COVID vaccine vaccination efforts for the country, uh, and we might get. I think with the uh, the Healthcare Act in New York State, we might get a couple thousand dollars for that. I, d- I don't really remember for the couple years. $2,000 is nothing in comparison to what we we handled. So it, it's a lot of dissatisfaction. It's people moving out of these traditional roles, which we talk about a lot, Mike. Um, and it's simply the funnel ha- is starting to dry up a little bit. I think that's the hardest thing. We, we do talk about non-traditional careers. And we've talked in the past in our burnout episodes about how many people are either leaving the workforce or considering it. And like you said, it's been a tough few years in healthcare. But as people leave healthcare, patient demand continues to go up as healthcare becomes more complex. Uh, capital, human capital becomes higher as a need. So the, the hard thing is that this issue is only going to get worse. It's going to continue to squeeze the people that remain in clinical jobs. My hope is that we have more innovation, we have more disruption, and that will be part of the solution. And from that standpoint, maybe some of this additional pressure will help accelerate that process. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm thinking about as you're talking about this in terms of innovation is, will pharmacies that are now closing earlier be okay in the sense that there's more and more options for, you know, mail order, for things that can be done virtually? Is there more opportunity for innovation within the retail pharmacy space with asynchronous virtual stuff? Of course. Yeah, there's there's lots of options that some companies have started to utilize already uh, using 
in video technology to view tablets and pills and weights and measurements uh, in real time where these mail-order facilities might have a pharmacist working at home on their computer, just remoting in to see exactly what's being dispensed and handling it that way. But I fear that what we're going to do here is get down to the technical pieces as to why this is occurring uh, and what corrections can be made in the future. uh, When in reality right now, I believe it is a reflection of how pharmacists or people wanting to go into the field, generally just how they feel about where they're at right now. That's Mm kind of where I want to maintain the focus, at least to how I'm looking at this. So reimbursements are are very different in the retail setting where we will take payment from you, your copay, whatever the insurance company has said that we can charge you, we keep that money. However, we will submit, say your drug cost us $10 to fill um, and we want to bill it for $15 there's a dispensing fee, what it costs us to put things together, um, what it costs for our overhead, what it costs for our labor. I mean, general, anybody who's run an organization understands what your costs are for running a business, but we will elevate or we'll increase that cost. Just like you do with burger, you're going to buy raw burger from somewhere. You're going to cook it and you're going to charge more for it for convenience in a sense. I know this isn't the same thing, but you can think about it that way. The, The strange thing here is at any given moment, an in, a insurance company can say, we're going to give you 15 cents for that drug, um, not $12. And so what you don't see is that we take a, a, a bath on that, but then maybe we'll make money on insulin. But those margins have started to squeeze closer and closer and closer uh, together. And these PBMs are taking the profit. So we are paying the pharmacies less uh, the support, therefore, cannot um, really hold the standard. You can't pay the increases to pharmacists. Like I can't tell you the last time pharmacists probably had even got a normal two percent wage increase. It's pretty. It's static year after year unless they hit bonuses. So you now have an industry that does not make it rewarding to go into financially. Um, you've got these companies who are giving $80,000 sign-on bonuses and you're telling us it's a shortage. There's plenty of people that can go work for this big box retailer. They're just not going to do it. They're, they're saying 80 grand is not worth it for me to do this. Uh, that I think is more telling to me than than what technology could potentially do or what labor changes can potentially do. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about stars. Let's talk about measurements uh, and where pharmacists have, have had to uh, walk into to make sure the patient's care is better, but we can't control these measurements. That was a rant. That was a heat. So that was my little bit. Yeah. It's like you're, uh, you're passionate about this or something. Yeah. So let's let's take a step back. So I I was asking the question with regards to, you know, burnout or why we're seeing this labor shortage, but it sounds like there's maybe I don't want to speak too, you know, in too much of a hyperbolic tone, but there's fundamental issues right now with retail pharmacy that are just leading to major problems. And I think what you described is interesting where reimbursement rates are low, 
pharmacy salaries are stagnant and that's leading to a drop in enrollment. You know, less people are going into pharmacy. And that's, in my opinion, that's not a bad thing just in the sense that the market is working things out. Mm-hmm. I think the nursing profession always fascinates me so much. I think it's Thomas Sowell, who's one of my my most uh, favorite free market economists. He has a whole chapter in one of his books that talks about nursing as a dynamic profession because you always see these articles about nursing shortages, right? And right now we have one where we're having all these contract nurses. But really what's happening there is there's an incredible amount of dynamic fluidity within the labor market for nursing because you only need an associate's degree to be a nurse. So, the level of training that's required to enter the market is actually quite short. So, if there's a shortage and wages rise, more people will become nurses or more people will enter the workforce. Maybe, you know, people are working part-time if they're moms or have other careers. And if the money gets good enough, they'll re-enter the workforce as a nurse, either full-time or pick up hours. And then if wages start to drop or have downward pressure, they'll exit the workforce, they'll drop to part-time. So, there's an incredible amount of fluidity there. Mm-hmm. Pharmacy is obviously more difficult because it's a longer course of training, same as physicians. It's harder to have that dynamic response to market forces. But you would assume if enrollment is dropping, if this is happening, eventually you're going to reach a point where pharmacy wages are going to have to go up because you have to have a pharmacist. You can't mm-hmm. run a pharmacy you know, per state law in all 50 states. You have to have that. So I do think that there will be eventually a response where wages will bounce back. But here's my question. I know that was a very long rant. It was my turn to rant. (laughs) Will increased wages fix the problem? Because it sounds like you're describing something that is far, far greater or more fundamental in terms of the problem than just stagnant wages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you pay somebody more. It's not for the people who are sick of it. It's not going to make a difference to them. I I believe. Let's step back to what you were saying about measurements and let's, and how do we see pharmacists being utilized now? Uh, it's just not an exciting time to convince anybody to go into the field. Uh, so yes, although salaries will probably rise and that will draw people because money does talk. I mean, there are some people who are okay just doing the general labor of really working a, a a machine line or just, I don't know. Sometimes I, I make jokes about it at work saying, sometimes I feel like I'm just putting a, uh, a nut on a bolt and just letting it go down the line over and over again, because it's been more about how much turnover can you get and not about the patient engagement. And that's why a lot of us went into this. Uh, okay. Let's, Let's take one step away again. And you mentioned more opportunities for use of mail order. This does open it up. You think about all the people who work later than seven o'clock, all these people who have shift work, or maybe they work the B shift and they get out at seven and they used to be able to rely on getting out of work, picking up their meds and going home. Well, if they're always working the B shift, what do they have to do now? Like they're going to have to find a 24 hour. They're going to have to use online pharmacy or a mail order pharmacy. And I'm sure that's what the insurances are, are banking on. Uh, so it's to make it cheaper. Now, this is kind of, this can be seen as complaining. And part of it is Mike, because at the end of the day, like you can complain all you want about how the conditions aren't conducive 
for a thriving healthcare professional, but it is up to the person themselves to make a change or to uh, potentially move the industry in a specific direction. But the market may just handle itself before that. Uh, I don't know, but it's a hard time for, for, uh, for pharmacists and it makes them nervous. I can tell you that worried if that, if they're going to get their hours cut, uh, worried if 40 hours is going to be in their future while maybe they have a stay at home mom or maybe they're a single parent. Like now we have to worry about this, but they're necessary. So why are we cutting hours when they're necessary and people can't find their 40 hours? It's, I don't, I don't yeah. know if we have the answer. Well, I don't know if that's a separate discussion or part of this, but I, I'm a big believer that in terms of combating burnout from an individual standpoint, if you are able to at your job, and I recognize not everyone's able to, if you are able to reduce your work hours, you know, maybe you're doing 40 hours a week and you can still maintain full-time status by dropping down as low as 32, which is generally the standard definition of full-time. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really wonderful opportunity to diversify your earning by finding some sort of moonlighting job that just at least gives you a change of pace. Maybe if you're a clinician and you're feeling super burned out, you drop from 40 hours down to 32. So essentially you go to a four day work week and then you teach one day a week. Or maybe you go moonlight in a completely different area. You know, if you're in an outpatient setting, you go to an urgent care or something like that just to change it up. Now, that's not going to fix everybody's burnout. But I think the freedom and the flexibility to be able to do that is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. So, maybe that's that's part of the discussion with the pharmacy side of it is if people's hours are getting cut, obviously, we can look at that in two different ways. We can look at that as a problem or, you know, something that is bad, loss of income, or potentially it could be an opportunity. It gives more worker flexibility. Maybe it returns some of the power to the worker. Well, instead of being mandated on a W-2 where you have to work for your employer for those 40 hours, you have a little bit more flexibility to fill in those income gaps with other things. I think that is where the the turning point in the conversation exists. Because I can tell you for all the reasons why I am upset for my fellow pharmacists, but if we didn't start this conversation, if we didn't start the podcast, we wouldn't have had the knowledge of all the different areas in which you can explore. So in, in a real world example, like taking the step back to 32 or even to 24 hours, I've had a few people I work with directly just take that reduction. And they've told me that their life changed dramatically. Having one day a week, they some of them were able to do it on a Friday, some a Wednesday split up the week. Really, no matter when you have it, it could divide it where just that one day of rest. And maybe it's not a day of rest. Maybe it is the eight hours of doing something where let me try my hand at writing. Uh, let me go on Fiverr and do some cheap writing to start with and get a portfolio. Maybe that day now is committed to doing career coaching and job searching. Uh, brushing up on skills, maybe taking a class that day. There are so many things that you could do. We're already talking about reducing your lifestyle. I mean, not spending all your money on, on things. So this could be an active way to say, okay, I'm, I have to take a reduction in my pay. What am I going to do to replace that time? Uh, so that it's, it's valuable. 
something that I am reducing my time in a stressful position purposely so I can come home and rest. Like, what does that rest look like? That's what we're here to talk about is for the people who are in this position where you don't know what your future looks like. Maybe you're nervous, maybe you're in pharmacy or not, but you're just wondering the outcome of my employer, like maybe they're running the business horribly, people are leaving or or they are having to cut hours just based on poor management. Or maybe you're just not enthused about your job anymore and you want that spark to be there. You've identified a few things that you really like to do, like sitting down with the patient and actually discussing things, maybe vaccinating, maybe taking patient history, whatever it is. You really don't mind doing those things, but everything around it just inflamed it. Well, this is your call to really just think about is eight hours a week reduction in pay potentially worth your sanity and potentially offer an open window or door for you to step through. Uh, And if you're just anxious about it and that's not even a thought, reducing your labor, you don't have to think about that. It's not a worry of yours, but you're just dissatisfied. Just start thinking about what is something that you could explore on the side Uh, and we would love to help you out. So if you're looking for something, if you're listening here and you're wondering where to even start, just Facebook message us and we'll connect you with the right people. And we can even start you with some good questions to start, uh, to ask yourself and others in your network. Are you familiar with the Iceland four day work week study from 2015? Yeah, please. Let's, I have, but let's let's, talk about it. It's the perfect segue. So for listeners that maybe are not familiar um, John can include it in the show notes since you're on show notes duty today. But there was a, a study done in Iceland where workers reduced from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week. So instead of five days a week, they worked four days a week. And what happened was shocking. Basically, productivity did not cut. People actually were more productive in some cases. So it allowed people to be more efficient in less time. And the idea being that, you know, our economy has become so productive, but also so efficient that we probably don't actually need 40 hours to get our work done. And a lot of times waste, you know, whether it be sitting around or unnecessary meetings, eat up a lot of that. So by going to a reduced work week, you're making, you know, as an employer or even as a worker, you're becoming more intentional in your tasks and you're you're making sure that the time that you are dedicating to work is more productive. Uh, Here's the problem though. Go ahead. No, I was going to say this. Now we grew up in a time where our parents talked about how bad socialism and communism was. And so even bringing up that idea that people will turn off their brain. Well, let's talk about unions for a second where how, how similar it is. Uh, if we were to treat everybody like an entrepreneur and if everybody had that, that ideology of an entrepreneur, and everybody became a 1099 contractor, Mike, could you, do you believe that that is runs in line with this, the study, the Icelandic study where you give people the autonomy and wherewithal uh, and financial, financial liability where they make different choices? Well, interestingly, I think that's the, one of the more compelling arguments for nationalized healthcare in my mind Mm -hmm. is that, the system we currently have where your healthcare, which is such a valuable and essential commodity, is tied to your employer, I think very often reduces our ability to move from job to job, 
or pursue things that may have less stability in terms of benefits. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a single payer system where your healthcare coverage is guaranteed, regardless of employment status, regardless of anything, then maybe that allows that pharmacist who's burned out to say, you know what, I'm going to try my hand at medical writing without that pharmacist saying, but I won't be able to pay for my diabetes pump. Or, you know, that pharmacist may say, I'm going to go down to part-time because I don't have to worry about part-time losing benefits. So maybe financially they're able to do it, but they have to make sure that they retain benefits right now. Well, that is less of a concern. Now, there's a whole discussion. Maybe we do an episode on it because I'm actually not a big fan of single payer in the sense of actual implementation because I think very often the government just kind of sucks at everything it does. And the VA is not exactly a, a paragon of healthcare. But so there's problems on both sides. But I think that argument is really the one that you're alluding to is that if we give people more security, it allows them to be more flexible and potentially be more productive as a result. But here's the problem is in my job, I see generally anywhere from 80 to 100 patient visits per week. If I cut my work hours and I worked less hours, I don't have the ability to have the same level of productivity in less time. Healthcare is a little bit unique that way. If I'm an accountant, I certainly may be able to do my job in 30 hours instead of 40. But as a healthcare provider and as a pharmacist, same type of thing, you can only fill so many scripts, right? So how do we, you know, harness this reduced work hour movement that's happening? And I think having some success in a field where our time is still so um, tied into patient care. We can't reduce time without reducing patient care. It's a difficult one. It, it, I think it's going to take somebody with a lot of resources, wealth, uh, and a, a lobbyist nature, because it's going to take legislation to move anything in healthcare needs some sort of movement on, on a bigger scale. But if we're talking about just like microcosms in a single clinic or in a single pharmacy chain, in a single hospital, uh, I think that there are ways to decentralize a lot of work. Somebody made the joke the other day at my in my work. They said if we can if we can get Red Robin uh, ordered from our phone, delivered, you know, it's made up, and and I can see. From the time it started being cooked to the time it was prepared, picked up, I can follow the person down the street. I can see exactly where they are. I can call and message them. Any, just the connectivity that it happens with food. We don't have that in healthcare. Why can't somebody know where their drug is at all times? Yeah, we can do this. This this technology exists, uh, but. We aren't utilizing it. We don't have the time, or maybe we're thinking, "What's what's the benefit to me as a capitalist, as an entrepreneur? Uh, am I going to make more money from somebody getting more efficient potentially?" But that is a lag measure. If I've ever seen one, you have to convince somebody that you're going to see this lag five, ten years down the line. Yeah, try to convince any admin of that. Uh, it's that's where the struggle is here. Like, there's great ideas. But we just don't have all this money that's tied up in healthcare. We have too much red tape to make decisions with autonomy. 
So here's here's an interesting thought experiment. I'm in outpatient psychiatry. So here's my vision of what it would look like in a in a scenario of innovation that would allow me to work a reduced work week but still maintain the same level of of efficiency. And I think one of the biggest things would be a move away from fee for service reimbursement. So eventually what I would love to see and I think there's little inklings that we may be moving that way is more population health mm-hmm. reimbursement. So in psychiatry, what I would love is essentially concierge care where, you know, the insurance company contracts with me and then says, okay, here are 300 people that you are going to manage. We're going to pay you a lump sum of money to manage these people. And it doesn't matter how often you see them. It doesn't matter how you document your notes because there's no concern for, oh, this, this documentation is this code or whatever. You document, you know, just based on liability and recording the visit. But basically, they give you a lump sum of money to just manage the patient. And then Mm -hmm. everything is very outcomes focused, not fee for service or, you know, patient encounter focus. And then what I can do is I'm left to my own devices to innovate and provide care the best way that I can see fit. Maybe wearable technology advances to the point where all of my patients are using their Apple Watch and I'm able to see how they're sleeping, how they're exercising. I may be able to even see a dietary log. Maybe we get to a point where smartphones will automatically track meals, you know, Mm -hmm. taking pictures or something like that. And then I can look at my dashboard every week and say, this patient is lagging behind. Their sleep has not been good. Their anxiety, you know, based on heart rate or things like that has been up. Maybe we're having them do some sort of standardized measurements such as depression screeners from home on their phone. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to track and I'm able to identify a patient that may be starting to relapse from a psychiatric perspective early on in the process. When normally it would take them weeks to call me and say, hey, I'm not feeling good. I've been depressed for two weeks. I'd be catching that on day one or day two. That would allow me to then call that patient. I don't have to have them come into the office to see me call that patient and say, hey, I noticed this is going on. Let's implement this plan to try and improve things. That would allow me to maintain or manage the same number of patients maintain the same or better outcomes for probably half the work that I currently do. Because right now, so much of the work I do is documenting and justifying coding for clinic visits that happened. And if I could document just based on what I need for medical malpractice or liability or what I need to make sure that I'm providing care, that's a totally different game change. And a lot of my visits are, I'm going to see you in three months just to check in and see how things are going. If I eliminated those kind of feeling out visits, hey, we're just going to check in and see how you're doing. And basically said, I'm only going to see you if there's a problem, but I'm going to monitor using technology, using these innovations so that if a problem occurs, I identify it. That would drastically change the way that we practice medicine. And all of that, as you just said, exists. It's not some far-flung technology that we have to wait 40 years for. Everything that I just described is here to some degree and could be utilized. What's holding it back is government, insurance reimbursement policy, but also just the, well, that's the way it's always been done. I think in healthcare, we talked about it with Lauren, innovation comes slowly because there's no incentive to innovate. Mm -hmm. Your reimbursement is the same whether you provide good service or bad service. So, why would someone be focused on the patient experience? I think that I'm going to chime in with this last piece because I could really 
go many different directions on this. And I want to stay focused on the idea behind burnout and why this occurs and what's happening in today's pharmacy and how it could project to the rest of healthcare is by not paying attention to these trends, Mike. I think that that's what we're saying is this generation uses technology to a greater degree. We trust it more than the, the previous uh, previous generation. And then the generation following is going to, it's going to be integrated in their life uh, potentially with their bodies from what, what we've been reading. Now, simple things that we can do at the clinic setting, like, like you said, wearables. I know that right now in Rochester, uh, there is, we use my chart with one of the major healthcare systems and it allows you to link your Apple watch to it. They can take, uh, your heart rate readings. Uh, you can check your, for arrhythmias on there, right? You can, uh, they've got the, the light, uh, what's it called? The, uh, the light turned on now for checking your blood glucose. So it's it's going to only increase because they have those micro those microdermal uh, implants too that they can test different types of blood gases consistently as well. So we know that this is going to only improve our our care, but we're going to have to collaborate more with each other. So like a pharmacist should be able to refill a famotidine prescription by themselves, uh, given a not. Uh, a non-complicated patient. Like there are so many things that pharmacists can do that we should just be able to do. So that's that's where I wanted to end is pointing out what we are currently doing to try and help this. This decentralized care we've been talking about, it's a new m- model where we're trying to set up these small offices in different community sites. Some are in pharmacies, uh, some are in library systems, wherever where you'll go in almost like an urgent care setting, but it could be for a primary care reason where you tell your symptoms to a nurse, the nurse documents it. It's a good filter. And if they think you need to see the PA or the NP, it's a telemedicine visit right there, uh, HIPAA compliant, and they complete everything there and give you your script via the phone. Work. So there's a, a screen process. So you're not taking time out of, providers days where a nurse can definitely assess a patient the healthcare system doesn't allow it or ai can do it or ai i mean we're Mm -hmm. we're getting to a point where ai absolutely can build algorithms that Mm -hmm. can make those triages really efficient or maybe ai assisted where you have a nurse Mm -hmm. who you know doesn't necessarily have diagnostic ability but can triage and then use an ai generator Mm -hmm. to figure out the, you know, the best outcome for that. The initial assessments. It's like, if we can, if we can just curb these easy things and make our days more simple, if you could simplify our day, uh, people are going to be way more satisfied. Uh, you, you, you hit a nerve because I'm coming back from vacation. Today was my first day back and I spent over an hour just doing refills mm-hmm. on scripts. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's scripts where I, do need to be involved every month. If it's mm-hmm. a controlled substance, if it's a class two, I want to make sure I'm- It's a REMS product. You need to be yeah, a part right. of it, but- But there, so many of these scripts are patients that have been on their Prozac 10 milligrams for 10 years. Stable. And I'm 
reviewing it and then just hitting the refill button. Like you said, why is that mm-hmm. an encounter? Why as a pharmacist, are you having to send that to me as a provider? I'm reviewing it, having to send it back to you before you can fill it. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's because of insurance companies, Mike. We can actually have unlimited refills, but it's because of insurance companies that they're limited to a year. Because if you have a provider that never checks in on their patient's medications, they continue to get refill after refill. They're paying for drugs that are essentially uh, not helping or potentially harming the patient. And so they see it as a stop loss potential. But uh, the the insurances are way too involved in healthcare. That's that's what we've that's what's happened here. Yeah, they, they are the payer in a sense, but we're the actual payer. We pay them to figure this thing out. And then now it seems like a Munchausen syndrome. Uh, little little uh, mommy Blue Cross has some little Munchausen syndrome <laughs> trying to make us all sick, but keep us that way because she likes us a little bit sick. Um, okay. I'm off my, I'm off my, uh, my soapbox, but I will all maintain right. that we will continue to talk about uh, your burnout prevention and what we can do. And I think the takeaway today is take a moment to think about one thing that you want to invest your time in, especially if you're worried, let's just open a Google and look up what is radiology or whatever you're looking into, but just take one, one moment today or tomorrow and do that. Uh, And that's all I have to say about this, Mike. That's awesome. So let's transition over to some personal stuff. Yeah. So as as per always, I know we keep picking up new listeners, our, our numbers keep growing, which is exciting. But at the end of these episodes, John and I always like to talk about something personal because healthcare can be all consuming and we don't want to lose our humanity within these career focused discussions. So John, you can go first. I have what to is talk fun or interesting. No, I got to talk about uh, my time away. Uh, of course. Okay. So we went to the city and uh, like I said, my wife had never been to the city and we, New York city, New York city. I know, that. I know mm-hmm. when you're in West New York or upstate New York, you say the city, everybody knows what you're talking about. And to remember who we're talking to. So we were going to go down and stay with friends, friends, kids all got COVID. So we had to decide what we we're going to do. We decided, ah, whatever, we're st- we should still go. We were going to go see a symphony orchestra watch uh the fellowship of the rings while they played all the music for it it's like we have to go still see it let's go take a couple days and mike i don't ever get to walk around and just explore and carolyn would rather be in a beach sitting and just listening to the waves and no children i want to walk around and learn stuff she kept up with me she didn't say a thing the whole time until both of our hips hurt uh, <laughs> our hip flexors. So I got to see more of the city than I, than I ever had before and got to see friends I used to travel with. I spent a whole year traveling with these, uh, this couple, and it was just good to spend time with people I haven't seen in a while, really taking time instead of staying home and doing a project here, going to see somebody that really fills me up. Like that really fills my soul up. And, uh, I feel connected again, coming back. So for me, yeah, it's it's a little bit more personal in the sense that uh, I just feel very happy right now, uh, more than an exciting thing that happened. But I don't. That's that's it's a good time. It's a great place to be when you're a pharmacist and worried about burnout. So at some point, I'll tell you the story of the time where I 
very cruelly dragged my wife to the World War II Museum in New Orleans when she was eight months pregnant, and mm-hmm. we ended up walking over 10 miles. So I, uh, <laughs> I apparently share your sense of adventure and learning, but also uh, maybe your autocratic approach to uh, getting your spouse to join in. Yeah, well, the I think uh, her parents took around too many Civil War uh, like <laughs> history tours. So me taking her to World War II, which is that's my time frame. I would love to go across Europe, uh, and eventually I will do it with you or with her. We'll we'll make it a business write off. We'll just call it podcast show research, and that'll be our <laughs> that'll be an upcoming uh, episode, everybody. But thanks everybody oh. for listening in today. Uh, we we love hearing from you. We uh, we had our Starbucks drawing. We had our winners, and very excited for them. But a lot of you missed out, so we're going to do this again in the future. And next time, we're going to ask you to share this around a little bit, and maybe the stakes will be a little bit higher. Uh, you might even be a guest on the show, unless I find you boring. Uh, and Is that a then, punishment or a, a prize? Well, I don't it's know. a punishment if they have to be with you, but mm. definitely a prize to be with me. I'll even sign something <laughs> if you'd like. But for for the rest of you uh, who are consistent listeners, we are going to be heading over to our Patreon-only page at the Offscript Podcast. Talk a little bit more personally about what has been going on in our personal fight against clinical burnout. And so we hope to see you over there. Uh, for the rest of you, please head over to whitecoatsoftheroundtable.com. You can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash WCRT or join us over at Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, where we will release any information and news that you might be curious about or is relevant to you. Until then, everybody, this is White Coats of the Round Table with Mike Asbeck and John McDonald. See you guys later. Mm-hmm.